Returning again to Nahum, we've had an overview and looked at the whole, and then we looked um, the last time at verses 1 to 7. This time we're going to focus on verses 8 through to 15. There's a few links and a few threads that run through it, which is why uh, we we have overviewed to start with. But as you will notice, if we are to begin at verse 8, the first word there is but. So that tells us immediately that what follows is linked to what went before. So there will be a measure of going back before we go forward. The message that we have in um, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. So we're told that it was a book of a vision. It's to two distinct groups. It's to the Ninevites or to the Assyrians and it's to God's people in Judah. Uh, and, And we're going to take that theme really for our thoughts today. We're going to look firstly at the author as he is revealed in these verses, which is where we will have a measure of recap. And then we will look at the message that was for both Nineveh and Judah. And then there is a message that is for the people of Judah. So that's going to be how we will look at it today. Verse 8, as we think about the author, which we know is almighty God. Nahum was just the man who had the vision and recorded the vision. But, verse 8 opens, but with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What we have seen has happened in the earlier verses is then complemented with this but. Well, there's an interesting phrase that we read and it crops up in in a lot of instances in the Bible. But God. When something is happening and there is an event in occurrence, but God. And there is an often, often a change of direction or in, in other instances, a clarification of what is happening. Perhaps the most famous of these is with Joseph when he's talking to his brothers and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In the New Testament, Paul says that he planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. In verse 8 there, we don't quite have a but God, but we we do in all but word. So it's helpful to have to think about these things to build a picture of who God is. I've got a couple more that I'm just going to turn to um, that I found quite interesting. In one, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, and David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph and Saul sought him every day. But God delivered him not into his hand. So David was protected 
by God. Saul had his plans. Saul was going after David, but God protected David. And we'll read a few verses from um, Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our, full, our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So the phrase, but God, gives us a, a, an example or a few examples of who God is and how God works. God is in control. Man meant things for evil, but God meant it for good. Paul and Apollos laboured, faithfully laboured, but it was God who gave the increase. God is in control of salvation. God protected David when he was being pursued by Saul. And God is the one, as we read in Ephesians, who has taken us out of darkness and saved us by his grace. And some of those Old Testament ones, certainly uh, David and uh, Joseph, those ones would have been an encouragement to the people to know that God was in control. So when they get this prophecy, they have something to look back on and say, God has done this before, God can do it again. But last time when we looked at uh, verses 1 to 7, we focused on four things that we were told about the Lord. Verse 2, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. So you can see where this is going. He reserveth wrath for his enemies. He will take vengeance on his enemies. <coughs> but we read also in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. This is not a rash thing. There is time for repentance. But the Lord will act. He is great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The third thing we saw was the Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, drieth up the rivers. Bashan languisheth. God is in control of the elements. God is in control of creation. And the last point that we looked at last time, the Lord is good, from verse 7, a stronghold in the day of trouble 
and he knoweth them that trust in him. So this is the author of the letter. This is who we have had revealed to us. A God who is vengeful, who will take revenge on those who are his enemies. But he is patient, but he will act. And he has the power to act because he is the God of creation. And the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. So when we read all of that, who we are dealing with, we need to be very careful when we come to this word, but there is something coming. The enemies of God are stacking up against his people. I've got an interesting quote from a, a chap called Michael Bentley. And he says this, Numbers do not concern the Lord. It is not those who appear to be full of strength who will win the victory. It is those who have the Lord on their side who will overcome. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty from Zechariah. Paul writes something very similar when he asks, if God be for us, who can be against us? And we read that in, in Romans. So the people were being persecuted and downtrodden by the Assyrians, the, the Ninevites. God has this letter for them, this encouragement for them that he will deal with Nineveh. Verses 9 to, and 11 have an interesting phrase. What do ye imagine against the Lord? Verse 11, there is one that come out of thee that imagine evil against the Lord. A wicked counsellor. Now that particular one, they've, they've discussed that numerous times and there isn't a set opinion. Is it one man? Is it this king? Is it this king? Or is it the kings who have suppressed and oppressed uh, Judah? The, that doesn't really matter. The point being, the phrase, and the phrase being repeated, what do you imagine against the Lord? What do you imagine evil against the Lord? So it's not just an attack by Nineveh on Judah. It's not just an attack by the enemies of God against God's people. When God's people are attacked, God himself is attacked. Why are you attacking me? He is saying there to the Ninevites. Why do you imagine evil against me and that would be a great encouragement to the people of Judah to know that their suffering was not just an attack on them it was an attack on almighty God and what do we know about the almighty God he will revenge he is slow to anger but he has great power he will deal with his enemies They would have drawn comfort from verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. So those who trust in the Lord have him as a stronghold. So, for all the persecution that comes from the Assyrians, from Nineveh, 
they are in the stronghold of the Lord and they can trust in him because they know that he will protect them. Them that trust in him. And this is the author of this letter. A jealous, a revengeful God, a powerful God, slow to anger, God who is in control of the elements, God who controls creation, a God, a Lord who is good and strong and knows his people. So then we turn then our thoughts to the message that was for Nineveh and for Judah. You could also perhaps rephrase that and say that this was a message for Judah and against Nineveh. They were to get the message, but it wasn't favourable for them. It was against them. Note the imagery that we have in verses 8, 9 and onwards. An overrunning flood, darkness and so on. And it's very much mindful of the physical that we have in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and in the clouds. Uh, and the clouds of the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and drieth up all the rivers. The mountains quake, the hills melt. Again, just a reminder that God is in control physically of the elements. And that translates spiritually. We understand what he means when we look at these phrases, an overrunning flood. We see on, on the news, don't we, sort of localised flooding and the carnage and damage that does. We can look back to Genesis and the, the flood uh, from which Noah and his family were the only ones saved humanly. An overrunning flood, an overwhelming flood. He will make an utter end of the place. That's the extent of the power that God has. He will destroy Nineveh. And it's quite descriptive in the way that he is labouring this point. An overrunning flood, an utter end. Now, if you read through verse 9, you will f find that phrase again. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. It's as if telling them that there would be an utter end once was not enough. If somebody told you that your end would just be, it would be an utter end, you would be destroyed, annihilated, gone. That would be enough, wouldn't it? But we have we have it again. We are reminded again, the following verse, an overrunning, an overwhelming flood, an utter end. Darkness shall pursue his enemies. And now that's also been explained uh, very helpfully, I think, as an eternal punishment. There will be an eternal darkness, an eternal punishment, an eternal separation from God for those who are against him. Now this, <clears throat> with the prophets, we know is, is them foretelling what is going to happen. 
There's an interesting little section in I uh, in Jeremiah in chapter 50. I'll just read a few verses from Jeremiah chapter 50 from verse 17 through to verse 20 because it covers these events and it points forward further. So Jeremiah chapter 50 verse 17, Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria hath devoured him, which is what we've been looking at here. And last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I have punished the king of Assyria. And I will bring Israel again to his habitation and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan and his soul shall be satisfied upon Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for and there shall be none. And the sins of Judah and they shall uh, not be found for I will pardon them whom I reserve. Therefore, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I have punished the king of Assyria. Where is Assyria now? It is basically desert. It's uh, in modern day Iraq, but the, the empire is gone. It's been destroyed. It never recovered after it was destroyed, after the prophecy of the Lord, because they had punished and oppressed God's people. But the, the verses carry on. Verse 14 also points to the punishment of God's enemies. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee. So that's how important it is. It's been given as a commandment. That no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image and I will make thy grave for thou art vile. No more of thy name be sown. So that was just sort of like their generations, their ancestry. Their empire has gone. They wouldn't be known anymore. They would be overtaken by other empires and other forces and they would be wiped off the face of the map out of the fa- out of the house of thy gods will I cut off thy graven images and molten image and I will make thy grave so again a, re- a reminder that they would be utterly destroyed for thou art vile now I, I read an interesting thing about that phrase thou art vile it can also be used in the same way as uh, we had in Daniel, how the people were weighed, or the king was weighed in the balances and found wanting. That's the same, um, um, the word has that same meaning. So I will make thy grave for thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. It's a great challenge there, isn't it? How is it with us today? How are we on the scales of God's justice? Will we be found weighed and found wanting? Or will we be found acceptable 
through Jesus Christ. Not of ourselves, lest any man should boast, but all of Christ, because we have trusted in him as our Lord and Saviour. How is it today with you? Are you weighed in the balances and found wanting? The enemies of God's people. Here it was the Ninevites, but it is anybody who doesn't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Saviour. But this was a warning, a warning for those who opposed God. But it was an encouragement for God's people because they knew that the judgment upon Nineveh was coming. They were reminded that God was in control and that he would deal with his enemies. And that he would deal with them and they would be lifted up. Verse 7 again, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But there is a message in the midst of all of this that is really just for the people of Judah. And we'll find that in verses 12 and 13 and verse 15. Thus saith the Lord, verse 12, Though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet they shall be cut down. So whether the the Ninevites and the Assyrians were at peace and thinking they had it all under control and had all of these support from other nations round about, yet they shall be cut down. Though I have afflicted thee, back to the people of Judah, I will afflict thee no more. Now, as we read, they were afflicted again later down the line by the Babylonians, but they would be afflicted no more by the Assyrians. God was going to deal with the Assyrians. For now will I break his yoke from off thee and will burst thy bonds in sunder. So they've had this encouragement that the Ninevites will be destroyed. And on top of that, they're going to get their peace their freedom from this oppression. But notice again how verse 12 opens up. Thus saith the Lord. That is how the prophets introduced their statements from God. Thus saith the Lord. So a reminder, a special mention that this is from God. No more oppression from Nineveh. They were also given another key word in verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. Behold, take hold, look and hold your thoughts on this point. Now this is a reminder that when the persecution and the the oppression was over, there would be those who would be sent as messengers and they would go to the mountains and shout from the mountains, peace, there is peace, we are free. So they have this freedom and they could rejoice and celebrate in that freedom. 
But the verse doesn't end there, does it? It carries on. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows. So they have freedom from the oppression of the Assyrians. What is the first thing the Lord tells them to do? Keep your feasts. Perform your vows. Worship God truly. They may have been hindered from their worship through the the oppression and persecution, but that will be gone. And when it is gone, you have no excuse. Not only do you not have any excuse, you should be delighted to worship and praise God and keep your feasts and perform your vows because God has delivered you from your oppression. Oh, Judah, they are called by name. There's no generalization here. It is exactly for you, Judah. Keep your solemn feasts. Perform your vows. Now that you are free, there is no excuse. And again, we can we can be encouraged by that, can't we? We can keep our solemn feasts and perform our vows ourselves by our attitudes, by attending and giving ourselves when we are in attendance to services and, and gatherings and uh, fellowship times. Keep your feasts. Prepare your heart. Read your scriptures with your whole being in your own time. And when we pray to God that we do so um, with expectant hearts, looking to God, listening to God. So we've seen then the author of this um, letter and again of this particular piece of scripture. We've seen that it was for the people of Nineveh and Judah collectively or against Nineveh and for Judah. But we've also seen that there is a specific portion that is an encouragement to Judah followed by a reminder of the blessing that they have and a blessing that they should look to um, exploit and, and use. Keep their feasts, keep the solemn assemblies, keep the vows. But we do well to remember that this is for today and this is for us as well as for, for them. Note the key words, thus saith the Lord. The Lord is speaking in this passage. He's speaking to us as well. Behold, the one who brings good tidings and peace. It's not too big a leap to take that to a gospel application, is it? What is the good tidings of peace? It is peace with God through Jesus Christ. The good tidings are the good news that Christ Jesus came into this world. That Christ Jesus died on the cross. That Christ Jesus took away my sins. Again, the question, do you trust in Jesus Christ alone to take away your sins? Do you confess your sins before him and ask that he will be your saviour? Behold upon the mountain the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. 
But we've seen also, haven't we, the darkness, the overrunning flood, the utter end of those who are against God. And that utter end is not an annihilation and a literal end. It is an end of living as it were in this world, but there will be a judgment to come. And an eternal punishment for sin. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We all deserve punishment for our sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, can save us all. Confess your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ alone to take away your sins. And he will be your saviour. Amen.